There was a little debate early on when we were planning things out. Uh, we actually, uh, we've started this thing on our staff where we do Christmas in July, which means we want to plan out everything that has to do with Christmas in July. And so we put all this together in July. And in those conversations, we said, are people going to come out for Christmas Day? I'm like, but it's God's birthday. Like, why would you not come to his house? It would be like you celebrating my birthday at your home. And it's like, thanks, I appreciate you, <laughs> like, at least in the cake. Um, and so we just thought, you know what, it's not going to be too long. It's a different type of service where we really do want to have fun and really enjoy and celebrate what that day actually means and, and what it's all about. And it's a great opportunity to bring some friends and family, uh, especially because, like we said, we're doing Christmas through the ages. So we're hitting on a few songs that might hit some nostalgia bones for some of you. And uh, we're hoping it would all be to the glory of God. Amen. So to kind of get that started, we are entering into a new series. If you see our new sign that Adorn put together, I love that sign. That sign looks awesome. Um, and, and, and if you're like born after 2000 and you're not taught cursive anymore, that says same God, different day. Is that true? Right? Teachers, are they not teaching cursive anymore? Pfft, look at that. Waste. Waste. All those years they gave me C's in handwriting for nothing. And we're going to use it in 20 years. But it says, same God, different day. And I think it's important that we understand that, that God is never changing. Right? God is not going to suddenly be a different God tomorrow than he was yesterday. God is not going to act differently. God is not going to suddenly shift. Now, how we view God might change and what we think God is like may change. We change and adapt and we try to mold God into what we'd like him to look like or act like or be like. But the reality is that God is a constant. God is the only real constant in this world. And so this is so incredibly important because with everything being so molded, everything being so sudden and, and unsecure, it's important that we have security in who God is. And so there's a verse in the Bible that really sums this up in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. This is kind of going to be the jumping off point for this series. But if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says it very simply like this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Why? Because he is the author of time. He exists outside of time. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by our rules and human law. God is so far outside of all of that that he can be the constant when everything else is changing. And I think that's so important because in particular, when it comes to our past, uh, I want to talk to you today about the God of yesterday. And uh, I was thinking about this and, and how often our, our past gets thrown in our face. And I'm going to be vulnerable with you this morning. I'm going to give you a family story of ours that I really hate. When I was about seven or eight years old, my, I was with my aunt uh, and we stopped by Walgreens. And, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you're the gopher, right? Like adults ain't going nowhere anymore. You go in there and do that. And so she gave me $5 and she said, hey, go inside and buy me a can of Coke. I said, no problem, Titi, I got you. And so I go inside, I open up the little fridge thing and I pull a can of Coke out. I go up to the register. Guy rings me up, says $5, I give him $5, I go back to the car, and my aunt goes, where's my change? And I said, what change? <laughs> she said, you paid $5 for a can of Coke? Now, I know it feels like cans of Coke are $5 now, but you can imagine back when I was seven or eight. And I'm looking at her dumb, like, what do you mean? Like, 
he said, give me $5. I gave him $5. Why would you pay $5 for a can of Coke? Because he asked me for that. Right? And so we, we had to go back inside, and, and it turns out uh, when I pulled the can of Coke, I had pulled it off of a six-pack. And so when he rang it up, it rang up as a six-pack, and he charged me $5. Now, in my defense, I'm seven or eight years old. This moron's 18, 20-something. He should have known better than to charge a seven-year-old $5 for a can of Coke. Nonetheless, it's what happened. Now, you would think there'd be mercy and grace. 30-plus years later, there is not a year that goes by where my family doesn't bring it up. When we're getting together, you know, Christmas time's coming out, you're going to bring this dish, and you're going to bring that dish, and I'm like, what, what should I bring? I'm like, I don't know, you can't even buy a can of Coke. Maybe you just bring the napkins. You know, I, listen, you know, you know they don't trust your cooking when they tell you to bring the napkins and the plates. Now, here's the truth, and my wife will tell you. Because they're starting to figure it out. I can cook. Yeah. Pretty good at it. And my wife's like, shut up. Let them think you're bad at everything. <laughs> then they won't ask you for anything. And I'm like, that's why I'm married. Wait a minute. Are you doing that to me? <laughs> See, I might be the dummy here. She might be the greatest chef on the planet. I don't even know. Now listen, that's, that's funny. I mean, it happens. I do think it's annoying. Like, give, you know, it's been 30 years, guys. Give it up. If that's the best story you got out of 30 years, I'm doing all right, okay? But man, people, we love to bring up your past, right? We love, and, and we do it, and family, we do it in a funny way. And some families, we do it still in a hurtful, damaging, but we think it's funny kind of way. But you know what? The Bible tells us that bringing up your past, digging up your past is one of Satan's favorite tactics to mess with us. It's one of his best tools, really one of his only tools because he is not a creator. He can't create anything. He can't make you do anything. And so what he tries to do is he tries to accuse. That's why the scriptures say, they call him the accuser, that day and night he stands before the throne accusing you of your sins. Saying, well, well, Joey was still this and Jesse is still that and Sarah is still this and he's pointing out all these things and he's constantly throwing your past in your face and more often than not, it's more than just a can of Coke that's going in your face. Yeah, but, but remember when, when you were 15 and, and, and you had that procedure done and nobody knew about it. And, and remember when you were 20 and, and you did that thing and nobody ever figured it out and you thought you got away with it. But I know what you did and I know how you acted and I know the thoughts. I know what's going on and constantly being thrown in your face. When you're lifting up your hands to worship, the enemy's just whispering. Remember yesterday? Your hands were lifted for a different reason. You weren't worshiping God. How, how dare you try to worship God now? How dare you? Why would you even do it? You're such a hypocrite. You're so fake. And constantly in your ear is the voice of the enemy bringing up your past, bringing up things, things that have been long forgotten by everyone but him and oftentimes by you. Remember that time you stepped out on your spouse? Remember that time you hurt your child? Remember that time you messed up. Remember that time you disobeyed. Remember that time everybody knew what you did. Remember that? You remember that? The enemy is constantly trying to accuse you of yesterday. So here's what I think. If we're going to bring up yesterday, let's bring up all of yesterday. Right? If you're going to dig up my dirt, let's look at my seeds that were planted in that. If you're going to bring up my past, devil, I'm going to allow God to bring up my past too. 
Because there are things that God has done in your past. Now, I'm talking to the believer in the room right now. There are things that God has done in your past that we don't ever bring up that needs to be brought up on a regular basis. Because we are experts at remembering everything bad. Right? You ever had that? Again, I'm just going to go. We got, there's some dysfunctional families sometimes. I'm just going to speak. Family especially. We love to bring up all the bad things. Right, all the bad, especially parents. I love, I love my parents. They, I love them to death. But man, they bring up that one time you forgot to pull the chicken out when you were 12 years old, and it's like I forgot. Like, what do you want me to do? I left it in the freezer. We ate hot dogs. It was fine. But we, there's constant of of bringing up, of accusing, of throwing things in your face. But we never bring up the good things. We never bring up the, the good stories, the good opportunities, the things that happened that were blessing in your life. And so what happens a lot of times, especially if no one ever brought it up for you, we don't bring it up for ourselves. So we constantly dwell on our mistakes. We constantly dwell on our past. Things that happened 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And it's still weighing on your head. It's still messing with your psychology. It's still buried deep within you, hurting you, making you insecure, causing you to worry. And it's so far in the past that you don't even remember what it is anymore. It's just buried underneath there. And yet the Bible is constantly telling us to remember about the things that God has done. So listen, I want you to look at this piece of scripture because this is what we're going to focus in on tonight. If we're going to, today, if we're going to bring up the past, let me remind you of what Jesus has done in Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one, verse 13 through 14 says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let me read that one more time. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Now I was never great at grammar, but has rescued, brought, have. These are all past tense. These are things that God has done, not will do. These are things that God has already accomplished in the life of a believer. He's already rescued you. He's already redeemed you. He's already restored you. He's already forgiven you. These are things that God has already done. And oftentimes we act like it never happened. And so we got to take time to look back and recognize not the things we did, but the things that God did in spite of what we've done. So if you're taking notes, I want to take you down memory lane real quick. And the first thing you got to remember is that Jesus Christ rescued you. Listen to me, believer. He rescued you. Well, what did he rescue me from? From the dominion of darkness, Colossians says. What does that mean? Well, the Bible often tells us that at one point we were slaves to sin. In other words, we couldn't help but sin. It's, it's part of human nature. It's just a natural inclination that we have. And those of you who are parents, you get that, right? Because we see it in our kids. <laughs> we love them, but they bad. And they, they just do stuff sometimes where you're like, I didn't teach you that, right? And when you, when you see a little baby lose, like my one-year-old sometimes will lose it and they literally will swing at your face. You're like, I, I didn't teach you. I've never done that to you. I didn't teach you that, but you don't need to teach sin. Sin is very natural. Sin is the most natural response we have. That's why it's called the sinful nature. It's something that in inherently wants to come out of you. It's something that inherently you want to do. Why? Because before Christ, you were a slave to that. 
right? Meaning you had no choice. It was your master, it had dominion over you. You were covered by those thoughts, you were covered by those actions, you were inundated with the desire to want to sin and it consumed the majority of your life. And again, a lot of us, we're like, well, pastor, I was never that bad, you know? I, was a, I wasn't like this and I wasn't that, I didn't do this and I didn't do that thing. Well, listen, it's not about the gravity of the sin, it's about the fact that you were a slave to sin. So it doesn't matter what job the slave had, the slave is still a slave. So it doesn't matter if you think, well, well, I, I wasn't as bad as this person. doesn't matter. You were still both slaves to sin. Yeah. And the devil loves to throw that part of our past in our face. The fact that he had dominion over us. With respect to those who have endured this, Satan is almost like an abusive ex. And he pulls up our spiritual PTSD. Since they no longer have control over you, they do everything they can to try to regain control. Playing games, reminding you of how they once had you, reminding you of where they once kept you. See, because that's the game that Satan likes to play. He doesn't have dominion over you, but he taunts you, teases you, messes with you, gets in your head. Again, I just, I think about it when me and my little sister would get into fights as kids and, and we just, we would go at it. I mean, fisticuffs, we would just go at it and then they would separate us and my little sister, she's so easy to rile up and so she would be in the other side of the house, the other side, just down the hall and you could kind of see her from the front of the house to the back down the hall and I would peek out and I would, this is all I would do. <laughs> and she would, ah! She would just throw a rage fit. And there was such pleasure that I would take out of like, I got, I'm in your head. Living rent free. Now listen, some of us are letting the enemy live rent free in your head. Nobody else is bringing that up. Nobody else. You walk in the room, everybody's looking at me. Everybody's thinking this about me. Man, don't nobody know your business. And even the people that do, they love you. They're not bringing it up. They're not throwing it in your face. I mean, sorry you're going through that. But, but we are so paranoid into thinking everybody knows and everybody's thinking this and everybody's mad at me and everybody hates me and everybody this and everybody that. But that's not true. And even worse, we treat God as if he still thinks about us that way, as if he still looks at us that way. And again, it's just this, this taunting enemy we have, this accuser that's constantly trying to throw something in your face that he no longer has power over you with. Listen, Romans chapter six, verse seven through 11. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Okay, when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never again die. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. There was an inmate on, on death row recently and they had, they had gone through the whole procedure and it didn't take. But technically, he was dead for a few minutes. So he's suing to be set free because he said, my penalty was death and I died. 
so you can't kill me again. And now it's in the course. You're like, oh, you kind of did die. Like, <laughs> they're, they're like going through this whole thing. The Bible tells us that the penalty of our sin, the cost of our sin is the shedding of blood. When Adam and Eve first sinned, what did God do? He killed an animal. He shed blood to cover their sin, right? He made clothes out of the skins of the animal and he covered up their shame. He covered up their sins with the shedding of blood. And all throughout the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that were made annually in order to cover the transgressions of the people of Israel. So they would sprinkle blood on all these different areas of the temple and order to make that covenant for the people of Israel. And what the Bible says is when Jesus Christ died, he being the ultimate sacrifice, the sheep without blemish, covered a multitude of sin, covered every aspect of our life. And now because the shedding of blood is required, the penalty has been paid. And so now we now spiritually have died with Christ and have been resurrected into a new life. That's what we have when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The old is gone and the new has come. We are a new creation. So what is that? that mean? That means the power that the enemy had over who I used to be is no longer power over who he has in me now. Meaning I don't have to do all that. Listen, I love the way Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, beloved, we still are tempted by Satan, but we are not under his power. We have to fight with him but we are not his slaves. He is not our king. He has no rights over us. We do not obey him. We will not listen to his temptations. Oh, you have the freedom to live the way God called you to live. So you're no longer a slave to your past sins. You're no longer a slave to your past mistakes. Now you might mess up, but that doesn't make you a slave. You might, you might have error. I mean, we're not perfect. Nobody in this room is perfect. Nobody is without fault. We, we, we mess up. But the price of our slavery has been paid for by Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says not only have you been rescued, but you've been redeemed. Right? In Colossians, he talked about uh, redeeming us. Well, what does it mean to redeem? To redeem is a release by a legal ransom. The price of our release was paid with the blood of Jesus. There, there was a ransom that was paid. We were redeemed. We were bought. We were brought back. A ransom being paid. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 through 15 says it like this. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. Here's the important aspect of redemption. Redemption doesn't mean you weren't guilty. We all are guilty. 
And this is an important understanding because if you stick with just being rescued, we act as if we're victims. But the truth is, Satan wasn't always the one that had to force you to sin. A lot of times it was your own sinful nature. It was your own desires. It was your own inability to control yourself. It was you giving in to what you wanted when you wanted it. And so what happens is a lot of times we like to give the devil all the credit in the world. It wasn't me, Pastor. The devil made me do it. Oh, Pastor, I don't know why. I didn't want to punch you in the mouth. The devil made me do it. And it's like, listen, I punched you back, so we're even, I guess. But we can't always chalk everything up to the devil. At some point, we have to understand, especially because we're no longer slaves to sin, but at no point can the devil make you do anything. He can tempt you. He can try to manipulate you. He can try to lead you. But ultimately, it's you as an individual who sins. And so this idea of being redeemed is so important because it helps you understand that, yes, even though I sinned, even though I messed up, there was a price that was paid for a sinner like me. That redemption means so much more because you paid for something that I should have paid for with my life. You paid a debt that I owed. And when you experience that, I mean, think about it from just like a a small way, right? Like if you've ever, I've never been blessed like this, Lord, give it to me one day. But if you've ever been like in a drive-thru, I've seen stories like that where the person ahead of you ends up paying for your meal. And you're like, there's this weird feeling like, wow, like that's amazing. There's just stuff, something wells up within you. Like my Big Mac was free, right? There's this this great feeling. And again, it's just food. It's not a big to-do. It's like, what, 15 bucks? It's like, it's not a big deal. But it's something amazing, a gesture of kindness and love because, you know, I didn't know this person. I don't deserve this. This is something I ordered. This I should have ordered more. Like, this is stuff that gets in your head. Sinners. The thought should be I should have ordered less, right? I feel bad now that he paid. A, that was all just for me. That wasn't even for my wife. But there is a humility that comes over you when someone else covers the debt. When someone else pays for you, there's this thought of, man, I'm so grateful. When you understand the high price that was paid for your redemption, the immediate response has to be gratitude. And when gratitude wells up, worship is a lot easier. I would argue some of you in this room have a hard time worshiping because you don't understand the redemption that was paid to enable you to even do that. Yes. Right? Dada had mentioned it earlier. When she said the veil was torn, what you have to understand is in the scriptures, we, we talked about sprinkling that blood. You had to go through a veil in order to do that. And not anybody could go through that. Right? One individual who was ceremonially clean, who went through all these rituals, a priest, a title, like there was all the, you couldn't just walk in and get in a vending machine, grab a cup of blood and sprinkle it everywhere. Right? That you, if you went into the Holy of Holies and you weren't clean, you would drop dead in the very presence of God. Like you weren't allowed at all in there to the cost of your life. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross and breathed his last breath, that the whole earth trembled and the literal veil that was in the temple in that area tore in half. In other words, we now have access to the very presence of God through the redemption of Jesus. And so the problem is if you can't worship knowing that, then you don't know what God is. You don't know who God is. You don't understand the price that was paid. Like I I go nuts 
again, if you just bought me a Happy Meal, I'm like, oh, thank you, man. I thank you so much. But, but when I sit and I think, since your love got a hold of me, I'm a new creation. I'm forever changed. Man, it's easy to lift up hands. And, you know, I feel bad sometimes, especially in church. Where, hey, why don't you lift up your hand? Like, we're not, you know, trying to stick you up or anything. But in truth, the lifting up of hands is the most natural inclination of celebration and surrender. Yes. Right? If you do have a gun in my, haste, my face, my hands are up. <laughs> and if something great happens, my hands are up. Well, worship is the only place where both are being done at the same time where I'm surrendering to God and I'm celebrating who he is in my life through the redemption of Jesus in my life. You understand what I'm saying? I wonder how many of us, our worship life would change if we understood the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. So we're rescued and we're redeemed. And if that was all that God did, I think that would be enough, right? If he rescued me and he redeemed me, that would be more than enough. But God doesn't leave it at that. Not only did he rescue you, not only did he redeem you, but God restores you. This is huge. Uh, I'm a big fan of of video clips and and television shows where they do restorations. Especially nowadays, we're we're really in a generation, and I don't even know if it's our fault. I think it's just how things are made. They're so dispensable now that if something doesn't work, you just throw it away. Because the cost of trying to fix that is more than buying a new one. And so anytime something's broken, we just throw it out. But I just remember growing up, like, we, we had to make it last. We weren't going to get another one, right? That TV, I don't care if the buttons fell off. You get a pair of pliers, and you make it work. You turn it. You get coat hangers. You get tinfoil. You stand like a weird flamenco till we get the channel. Like, why? This is the only TV we ever going to get. And with the, the time we got the new TV, we didn't even get rid of the old TV. That just became the stand for the new TV. <laughs> right? How many of y'all had an old TV holding up the new TV? We just didn't get rid of anything. It was all restoration, man. It was just got to keep this thing rolling. And so, and so what I love about God is God never wanted to replace you. He wants to restore you. Right? That's the beauty of it. God's not here. He's not, hey, listen, I'm going to make you completely different in every way, shape, or form. No, the truth is we are a new creation, but you're still inherently who God created you to be, just minus the other stuff, minus the things that were tainting that creation. And so if you were funny before Jesus, man, you can still be funny after Jesus. If you were lame before Jesus, you might still be lame after Jesus. Like, the redemptive power is strong, but man, you are not, right? So, listen, I apologize if you're lame, okay? I apologize if you consider yourself lame. But, but that's always been a comfort to me because a lot of times we think, well, well, if I accept Jesus Christ, then I, then I got to act completely different. I got to be this whole different person. No, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. Things have to change, right? Because that inherently is true. Anytime, I don't care what relationship you get into, things change, okay? Like it just happens. It's by the nature of that relationship, things begin to change. And when you get into a relationship with Jesus, yes, things will begin to change. But who you are inherently is who God created you to be. Your personality, your giftings, instead of using those things to hurt God or against the kingdom of God, now God restores those back to the original settings and the purpose for which he made you. So listen, some of you, like I've, I've always been able to talk. I just, I got in trouble for it for many years, but I've always been able to do it. Talking was never a problem for me. 
The thing is, I allowed sin to taint my conversation so that it didn't edify, it destroyed. It mocked, it teased, it, 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 yes, I made people laugh, but at the expense of other people. And so constantly my words were used to destroy because the Bible tells us the tongue has the power of life and death and I was using it for death. So when God redeemed me and restored me, he didn't suddenly make me mute. He said, no, now I will use that mouth for my glory and for my honor and I'll restore it. Why? Because I always intended it for that. So listen, that's the beauty of it, man. If you were just always like a caring, empathetic person, now you're caring and empathetic for the Lord. If you were always someone who, who just brightened up a room, now you brighten up the room for the Lord. Like those beautiful traits that everyone's always loved about you, that doesn't have to change. It's the things that tainted what God created that moves away. The Bible tells us that in Colossians, when we were restored, we were brought into the kingdom, Right? To restore means to bring back or to put into the original state or the former state. Our original state, our original setting was Adam, right? Adam who walked through the cool of the day with God. Adam who spoke with the Lord. Adam who had a relationship with God. A friend of God who walked with him. That's the original state. That's what God wants to restore is the relationship. God is saying, listen, it is sin that has separated us. It is sin that has fractured us. It is sin that has caused us to no longer be in communion the way God desires and the way we are inherently created to want to be in communion with God. So what does God say? I'm going to restore our relationship. Amen. Thank you, Lord. And listen, we're not great at that anymore as people. You're just with each other. Somebody hurts us, we're good at cutting. My wife, she'll tell you, she'll be the first one to tell you. She got no problem cutting somebody loose. You, you sidestep her, she's like, yep, forever gone. Like she, and I'm like, babe, you should have patience. And she's like, nope, I don't care, never again. I'm, I'm very much the opposite. I, I try as much as I can, as much as it depends on me. I, I try to do some of those things. Uh, to, you know, if you're going to be whoever you are, that's between you and God. But I'm going to try as best as I can to bring restoration where I can do that. But listen, God, with you and I, there's no need for him to want to have to restore that. What do we bring to the table? What do we bring to God where God's like, oh, I have to restore this relationship? It has nothing to do with us. It is simply the love of God for you and for me that he sacrificed everything for what? A relationship with you. To restore what was once broken to bring back to the original setting. Listen, Romans chapter five says it clearly. Verse six through 11. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Let me just pause right there because I think this is so incredibly important. Too many of us think we got to get ourselves fixed up before God can restore us. That, again, that would be like I'm trying to bring a piece into a, a store that does restorations and I work on it in the backyard before I bring it in. What am I paying you for if I did it? And the truth is I can't do it. That's why I need to pay you. And so what is he saying here? He's saying that while you were messed up, while you were in the worst of the worst of the worst, Christ looked at you and said, I'll restore that relationship. 
because he doesn't see us as our sin deserves. He sees us as his own. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. God. Friends of God. What is he saying? Hey, listen, we were enemies. We were enemies. And Jesus Christ brokered peace between us and the Lord, between our enmity, between the hostility that existed because of our sin. And Jesus Christ, the mediator, says, I will cover that sin so that I can restore you back to full sonship. A lot of times, you know, I'll I'll watch, I, I mentioned some of the videos I like to watch on restorations. I love the ones where they find like, an antique kitchen item. Like sometimes they have like old bread slicers or, or something like that. And it's so fascinating to me, you know, they speed it up a little bit, but it's so meticulous how they take every little thing apart. They just completely break it apart first. They sometimes have to add some W40 to loosen up some things that have been really stuck over time. Some things require a little bit more work. They sand it, they wash it, they, they blast it with little sand. I mean, they do all these really cool, intricate things. They bring it down all the way to the bear. Then they add a fresh coat of paint. Then they, they dry it and they start piecing it back together. They sharpen the edges if there's something that's cutting to make it back to that. They put new wood pieces together. I mean, it's really a beautiful piece of work that they do. And by the end, what you see, the end product, looks nothing like the beginning product. See, that beginning product, I would have never touched. I would have left it in the garbage because I didn't have the skills to bring that back to life. But God, he didn't see junk in the garbage can. He saw something that had intrinsic value because he created it. And as the original manufacturer said, I know how to restore that. I know how to bring that back to life because I see it for how I created it to be, not for what it's become. Listen, some of us in this room, we only see what we've become, not what we were made to be. We only see the past and not the future. And the beauty is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Worship team, if you can come up. We're getting very close to Christmas Day. And if you read the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of Luke, you read that uh, Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist, a relative of Jesus. He is about to go to church and and do his temple duty. And you find out an interesting fact. From the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, there's a span of about 400 years. And for 400 years, God does not speak. Through no prophet, through no prophecy, through, through nothing. There's just nothing. For 400 years, there's no voice of God. No one hears anything. And yet, Zechariah is still doing his temple duty. He's still going to church. He's still fulfilling his um, obligations. And then all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah, and he tells him that the Christ is about to be born, a child is about to be born. And on top of that, he tells him, and your wife will also miraculously be pregnant, and you guys will have a son. 
And Zechariah doesn't believe him. I mean, why would he, right? 400 years, I don't hear anything. But if it were me and some angel showed up, I think I might think I'd believe. But nonetheless, because of his lack of faith, his mouth is shut. If you won't believe what you hear, then don't speak anything either. And the Bible says his mouth is shut all the way until Luke chapter one, verse 67. And I want you to notice something here in light of what we've been talking about. In verse 67, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now this is the first public declaration from the Lord, right? The Lord had spoken to individuals through the angels, but now this is the first prophetic word that we see in Luke. God speaking to his people through one of his own. And this is what he says. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said to the holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. What is his prophecy? That Jesus Christ came to rescue you to redeem what was lost and to restore you to a position of worship and fellowship with the living God. Jesus Christ has come to rescue you from all your enemies, from your past, from your sins, from the things that are constantly thrown in your face, to redeem those years that you think have been lost through all the mistakes you made and to restore you, not just to fellowship, but to sonship to be considered the sons and daughters of God. And then he speaks to his own child, and you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Believers, we have been rescued, we have been redeemed, and we have been restored. So now it's time to act like that. Now it's time to live as the redeemed. It's time to live as the restored. It's time to live as those who have been rescued. And in doing so, we have to recognize that not everybody has received that yet. See, he gives the prophetic word of Jesus and then he prophesies about the role his son will play in that. That you will declare the way of the Lord. You will prepare the way by telling the people that a savior is coming. That's what we're doing leading up to Christmas, right? Where we all come together and we celebrate that Jesus has already come, past tense, and remains with us. And in a moment, we're gonna take some time as a church to recognize that. But I'm gonna ask you for just a couple of moments, would you bow your head and close your eyes? I just want you to hear my voice. Just want you to understand this one last thing. Everything I said 
about being rescued, about being redeemed, and about being restored only applies to those who have accepted that free offering that Jesus made on the cross. Contrary to popular belief, we are not all children of God. We are all created in his image, and so we desire to be that, but only those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have the right to be considered the sons and daughters of God. Only those who accept that rescue, who accept that redemption, who accept that restoration can live in it. Harriet Tubman is accredited with saying once, I freed a thousand slaves and I would have freed a thousand more if they only knew they were slaves. There are some of you in this room, you don't even recognize that you're still a slave to sin. And I'm not saying you're a horrible person and I'm not saying all this and that. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a greater life ahead of you if you're willing to receive the free gift of salvation that God is offering you and that your past will no longer be able to dictate your future. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, even if there's one person here, this is so important to me that I wanna take that moment. If you're here, sir, ma'am, and you're saying, I have never accepted Jesus Christ as my savior, or maybe at one point you did long ago, but you've completely walked away from that and you know that right now, I am not living as someone who has been rescued, redeemed and restored. But I don't want my past to dictate my future any longer. It doesn't matter what I used to believe, what matters is what do I believe right here, right now? And if you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and did what he says he did and you wanna receive him as your Lord and savior, the Bible is very clear that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord, you are saved. And some might think, Pastor, that just seems too easy. Yes, it's easy for you and me. All we got to do is accept it. The hard part was done on the cross. Jesus already did the hard part so that all you would have to do is receive. So again, with every head bowed, every eye closed, between you and God, if you were here and you say, Pastor, I need Jesus in my life. I want to accept him as my Lord and Savior. I want to know without a shadow of a doubt that I have a relationship with him. With every head bowed, no one else looking around, would you just lift up your hand and I'm going to include you in that prayer if that's you today.